Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Chef Trevor Louis to Table Talk. Trevor has built a life and career surrounded by the sights and sounds of food and drink. He has spent more than 20 years producing thousands of event experiences as an executive chef for major entertainment venues, top-tier hotels, and casinos. He's been involved in innovative implementation, brand marketing, operations, and ground zero build-outs. And he believes we're all connected through our dining experiences. In 2018, Trevor left his corporate job to fulfill his entrepreneurial dream of creating unique experiences. Since then, he's helped co-create and develop several innovative food brands, including Hand Pie Snack Bar, Yatai Japanese Street Food, Shuk Noodle, La Brea Food, Fat Rabbit, and Stacked Market Collaborations, as well as McCann Noodle Bar, Pop Kitchen, Bao Bird, and the newest creation, Super Fresh Night Market. Trevor has also built an agency called High Bell Group, which curates uniquely immersive culinary events that push the boundaries of innovation, coupled with a growing list of clients that seek services for branded video content in the style of his well-documented Soul Food Food Stories series. Trevor is also co-founder of Quell, an agency representing food and drink talent with a focus on broadening BIPOC work and leadership. And if that's not enough, last year, Trevor released his inaugural cookbook called Double Happiness. Good morning, Trevor, and welcome to Table Talk. Good morning, Roseanne. Uh, There's a lot more there than I ever imagined that I did. (laughs) I I I have to abbreviate that. I think there's more that I probably haven't (laughs) even touched upon a lot. Yeah, I mean, well, I uh, I have a short attention span and I get bored really quickly, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you've done a great deal of, of um, initiatives in your career and there's a lot of diversity in what you're doing, so that's wonderful. So I'm really thrilled that uh, you've been able to make some time this morning to be with us on Table Talks so that our listeners can learn a little bit more about you. I know you're very well known in the industry, but I'm sure there's also uh, some people who may not know you as well, so hopefully... Um, After this conversation, we'll get to know you a little bit more. Thanks for having me on. So I I thought we'd start off just a little bit with, you know, background and where where you were born and, you know, your education and and how you ended up in this industry, because everybody's arrival on the industry scene is different. And some take so many twists and turns and some are much more focused. So how did it happen for you? Uh, I mean, the, the, the short path would say is that uh, I grew up a restaurant brat, um, but that certainly wasn't the route that I was intended to take. Uh, born and raised in Toronto, but you know, first generation Canadian to immigrant parents from Hong Kong. Um, you know, and, and I think it's, it's really easy for everyone to see sort of what you can list off as what you've done, but we very seldom talk about most of those things at some point become failures. Uh, and so every single time when you close something or, or something goes away, uh, there's some 
there's some muscle memory there that helps you prepare for something bigger down the road. Uh, and I'm not afraid to talk about that, particularly at this point in my life, especially after going through a pandemic like everyone else has. So uh, I did go to university. I, I went to University of Western, uh, but I also share the story of the fact that I never finished school. Um, I grew up in a restaurant setting. Um, my father owned a restaurant in Rexdale, of all places, a Chinese restaurant. My grandfather was the chef. My 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 grandmother ran um, the hotline and the garmanger. My dad ran the house. And I was a brat in that restaurant day and night until my mom would pick me up from work. They were hardworking immigrant parents like everyone else. I, I grew up with mostly um, members of the Caribbean and Italian community. And so I went from playing soccer and waiting for the Chinar truck to eating beef patties at the at the bus stop with my friends. So it, it's the consummate, you know, Toronto growth story from the mm -hmm. 70s and 80s. Um, and so I, you know, I worked in restaurants as a kid, you know, helping out packing takeout and then eventually getting a, my, my first paid gig was a busser at the Spaghetti Factory when I was 14 years old. And oh, wow. For anyone that didn't know, that whole strip on Esplanade was owned by one person. My my uncle was actually the general manager of Brandy's on the corner. I remember um, Brandy's. Yeah, you remember Brandy's, right? So it was Spaghetti Factory, Organ Grinder, Scotland Yard, Brandy's. And so I was around that scene downtown as well. And my uncle got me that job. And then, I, you know, um, I went to university, uh, wasn't very good at it, not because I was not educated or wasn't good at school. I just didn't really like the system for for, mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes. Uh, so after a couple of years, uh, I, I I was actually running a cafe while I was there because I couldn't really get away from it. Um, <laughs> and as much as I wanted to sort of go down the road of not being in hospitality, it just brought me back. And so when I came back to Toronto, I was an atypical 20, 21 year old, uh, moved back into my parents' home and was aimless, had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, took odd jobs being a server and a waiter, uh, worked at Moven Pick on York Street. Right. Uh, you, you know, and, and that was great. You know, uh, money was great, but you fall into this trap of falling in love with the money as a server or a bartender. And at some point, you need to make the sacrifice of um, that lifestyle to understanding that at some point you need to be an adult and, and move to an area of like progression of self career mm -hmm. if that's what you wanted to do. And so on a flyer, I, I took an interview in a hotel uh, as a sales executive, and I got the job. And that's really where it all started. It was 1998, 99. Uh, and I started my hotel career. And as they say, the rest is history. I worked in corporate, mostly on the front of the house, um, up until becoming an executive and running um, a convention center in Toronto, uh, and then left it all in 2018. You know, the, so which hotel was that in that you started as a in sales? So it was the Constellation Hotel, which is no oh, wow. longer there. The strip, uh, yeah. yeah, right on the airport strip. You know, it had the magic carpet room on the top floor of the hotel. You know, back then, you know, if you take a look at if you talk about the hotels that were iconic hotels in the city, there were maybe four or five. You know, mm -hmm. on the west end of the city, it was the Skyline Hotel and the Constellation. Downtown, you had the Royal York, the Sheridan Center, um, and the Harbor Castle. Right. And everyone sort of were trained in those hotels. And, you know, a lot of people don't know. They had a culinary school attached to it as well. That's right. And their most famous student that came out of Constellation Hotel was Mark McEwen. Mark McEwen. Yeah. It was a great teaching hotel. A lot of people. Great teaching hotel. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So after a year working there, I actually uh, got recruited and was hired at the convention center downtown. And I worked seven years producing some of the largest events in the world, you know, um, and then I moved on to Delta Fairmont for a year, then went to gaming, 
and then came back home uh, to work in convention center. And then 2018 uh, kind of discovered or made the decision that I was ready to sort of uh, at the ripe age of like 44, 45, <laughs> leave my grown up job after working so hard to climb that ladder. So that's really kind of an interesting trajectory because you grew up, like you said, as a restaurant brat, and it was really in your blood with your grandfather and your father both being uh, chefs. Um, and you kind of stayed away from restaurants, but then you got into hotels. And like, why hotels at that point? What was it about? Was it just a different kind of stability for you in sales as opposed to the long hours? What what, what fueled that? So a lot of people, what a lot of people don't know is I am not a chef by trade. So I'm not, I didn't go to culinary school or I wasn't classically trained. I grew up in the setting. I did more building of kitchens than anything. When I took the job on at the Constellation, it had, it had just been a couple of years in that it was purchased by Regal Hotels out of Singapore. Mm-hmm. So it was Asian owned. The GM was Chinese, Portuguese Chinese, and had a connection to my father. And my father said, listen, they're looking for a salesperson in catering. Yeah. Who can speak Cantonese and English. I happen to have fairly good linguistic as a Canadian kid. I can speak a little bit of Cantonese. And so I took a flyer on it. You know, it, it was nothing that I'd done before. It was a hotel sales job. I'd never sold catering. I'd never had customers. I'd never been in an interview like I was in. You know, I was interviewed by director of catering, director of sales, and a GM. And I was, you know, you know, they're trying to say, fake it until you make it. I mean, at that point, it was like, can I do this? And then when I got it, I was extremely surprised and I, I tell the story all the time when they offered me my employment contract salary um my salary my annual salary was less than eighteen thousand dollars a year right and at that point i was like wow i'm making a ton of money <laughs> of course it wasn't any money at all uh, but you're looking at 1998 so it was a long long time ago entry-level job um and yeah i learned the hard way and, and so when i got into the hotel what i wanted to do is that i was I was all in. And for everyone that really knows me, I I have a very addictive personality. I'm either an all in or all out kind of person. So when I got all in, my goal was to any opportunity within the hotel that I can learn if they needed help Mm -hmm. on the front desk, if they needed help in the restaurant for a host and they were really busy, I put my hand up and do it. I spent time in the the kitchen with, uh, God bless his soul, Chef Joseph uh, Van Lanten, who is... Who, who a lot of people don't know, you know, is is an icon. There, there's this, yes. you know, there's this culinary tree of people that are descendants of Chef Joseph, right? And even though I never cooked under Chef Joseph, I spent a lot of time in that kitchen with him and I learned a lot from him. And any moment I had, I would ask if I could sit and talk to him, right? And the unique thing about that hotel is because it was Chinese owned. We had a Chinese restaurant and we had an entire separate Chinese kitchen. With mm-hmm. a Chinese executive chef, Amazing. and so for me, I was like, very, I, I was very lucky to learn uh, two different aspects of um, culinary service from the back of house to the front of house. That's amazing! A uh, great training. I mean, great chef to learn under. Um, so your your love of food has never really waved. I mean, you even though you got into hotels, you then uh, you you went back into food service. And um, as your bio showed, you you started a lot of different kind of concepts. Tell me a little bit about your food philosophy. I mean, a lot of that was self-taught, as you said. You didn't go to culinary school. Um, do you regret not going to culinary school, or do you feel that uh, um, food doesn't have to be learned in, in a culinary environment, like a school environment? I had never set out to be a chef, first of all, uh, and I will. I always say this. 
Uh, I think people throw the term chef around too loosely. Loosely. Um, I, I, I understand the respect that people bestow on someone like me and calling me chef. I actually still feel very uncomfortable. Um, I have a tremendous amount of uh, respect and pride for the people who put, you know, I have a lot of friends um, in culinary institutions uh, that have put their lives to this. And so I have a, you know, a high level of respect for what the term chef means a lot of my chef friends have now told me they're like, you know, you just chill out because just because you didn't go to culinary school doesn't mean you're not a chef. He's like, you've learned how to cook, you've run businesses, you've run kitchens, right. you've hired people, you're just as chef as everyone else. But because I never really went the traditional route, I still sort of feel um, uncomfortable. Um, but for me, the one thing that I learned that a lot of times they don't necessarily teach you uh, in chef school or in culinary is the entire side of everything else, which is the business side. The business side. Uh, and that's where I came up in. So mm-hmm. I spent a good part of the latter of my career um, going in and fixing operations and building new kitchens and back of house. So I had a tremendous comfort with the operations, but it was something that I had to learn. Like in 2014 is when I really sort of started my first ambitious goal of investing into a restaurant and then sort of helping out on designing the food. And then all of a sudden, from a marketing perspective, people started calling you chef bit by bit every time we did an event. And the rest is history, right? So that was almost 10 years ago. Well, that's amazing. And, and like you said, I understand your your unease with it, but you have you have done that and you, you know, you've created a lot of great kitchens and you you learned a lot on along the way. So in for all intents and purposes, you are a chef, even though the designation, as you say, makes you feel a little uncomfortable. So Having run a lot of restaurants, and I know you spoke earlier that not all of them have been successful and there's failures along the way. Um, what have you learned through all the different restaurants that you've operated over the years? And I, I know the last three years have put a new crinkle in, into your education because the pandemic was a whole different um, you know, game for everybody. But what's been among some of your biggest lessons that you've learned as an operator of different brands now? Oh, there's so many. There's so many things to learn. I mean, um, I think for the longest time, we've noticed uh, that this industry is, is a fractured industry, number one. Uh, number two, it's, it is severely flawed. Um, and and by no means, when I say flawed, it's that we can bestow all the blame on operators itself. Uh, I think that we have seen through the times of a pandemic that our industry does not get the recognition that it deserves in terms of what the economic impact is, both from a job creation and a tax creation. Um, and, you know, so there's there's a lot of things there. I, I've learned that certainly uh, what works a year ago doesn't necessarily work today. It, it used to be, it didn't work five years ago, it doesn't work today, but, you know, everything is moving so fast today. Um there are a lot of successful restaurants, but not as many as people think, right? I mean, those are unicorns. Uh, this industry is very, very hard to succeed in. And so if there's something that I can learn that, that I would say that, you know, that's really, really important is understanding the importance of how you build your team uh, and loyalty. Uh, and when I say loyalty, it's not understanding how your staff are loyal to you, but how you as an operator have to be loyal to them as well. Um we have a lot of work to do in this industry still. We are still predominantly uh, male, uh, predominantly Euro, it's Eurocentric still. You know, everything we teach in culinary and in business is 
built and based on traditional Eurocentric values of a restaurant and a kitchen. Um, it's and it, it's not to say that it's not wrong, but we need to open up our, our our learning a little bit more. So I've learned a lot. I mean, I've learned about the value of uh, partnerships, um, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, this industry is really good for testing your 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 you know testing your boundaries on what it's like to forge uh, partnerships when it comes to business. So I mean, I could. There's probably an entire podcast of what I've learned in terms of opening restaurants. I mean, the pandemic is a separate discussion altogether, right? But um, yeah, um, you know, one one point that I always tell people because you know younger cooks uh, aspire to open a restaurant, right? And I always say the most instantly. important instantly the most important thing that people don't take the time to understand is a balance sheet, mm-hmm. right? Um, they need. Everyone needs to understand the basics of a balance sheet. And it could just be five numbers and five columns on each side. Write those down. If the number isn't close to black in the beginning, <laughs> just rip that piece of paper apart and throw it away. Right. Um, and I think that is the most important. Um, passion doesn't pay the bills, right? Um, the love of your food that you love doesn't always pay the bills. Sometimes you have to cook food that people want. Right. right. That's a hard and lesson for a lot of chefs to learn, right? 100%. So you talk, and, and a lot of it has to be with the progression of understanding certain cuisine. So if you think about something like Japanese food, where it is today, right? Now you can go for yakisoba, ramen, katsupan, like all kinds of different variations of Japanese food. But if you go back 20 years ago, not even 20 years, maybe five years ago, if you ask most Japanese restaurants what their two number one skews are, it's generally California rolls and teriyaki, right? Things that right. a Japanese yeah. chef does not want to cook for you. That's right. <laughs> but guess what? California rolls and chicken teriyaki pay the bills. So you have to understand the balance about what do you have to sacrifice before you get to a point where you're like, okay, now I'm going to make the calls. I'm going to want you to eat what I want you to eat. Right. Right. So it's a matter of putting your ego aside sometimes, right. To, to understand who your consumer is and what they want. Well, let's, let's just say that in the culinary world, particularly from the chef world, we have no shortage of egos. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I myself, think myself included, myself included sometimes. So, so you, you've mentioned, you've touched on a lot of really important issues. And, you know, one of them is that the industry is flawed. And, and when I ask that question, sometimes people in the industry get a little sensitive about it saying, no, 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 it's not flawed. Um, you, you mentioned that the industry is flawed. Can we touch on some of the issues that make it flawed and, and what, what do we have to do to to start um, correcting those flaws? Because we're standing at a time, you know, after three years of the pandemic, it's 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 basically decimated everybody. But we also see a ton of labor shortages and people leaving the industry. And I think the pandemic shone that light on what was flawed about the industry, and uh, and and some people just chose to to abandon it totally. So from your perspective, as someone who's kind of been there as a little kid in restaurants to where you are today, after working in so many different bigger, uh, bigger establishments, what are the basic flaws that you see? And what needs to be done to address those? Um, So certainly from a labor perspective, so we've lost 40% of our workforce through COVID that haven't, meaning 40% haven't returned. Mm-hmm. I think we're sitting at somewhere like 120,000 vacancies in our industry uh, across the country. Um, 
there's nothing attractive about our industry anymore, right? So no one gets up in the morning and says, I want to be a general manager of a restaurant or I want to be a sous chef in a kitchen at a hotel. And yet there are actually very attractive jobs out there. I just think, I just think mm-hmm. that we haven't done the right thing to make this industry attractive, partially because we have a, a, a specific issue with wage disparity in our industry, right? We we work on the premise of minimum wage, which many, many know that is fairly low and it's not a it's not a living wage and try to make up the gap with tips um and you know it really has it's made this very polarizing between operators consumers and workers like Mm -hmm. we are we are all fighting but we're actually all struggling from the same thing owner operators small business guys that are working on margins of three and four percent net cannot increase wage from 17 dollars to 25 dollars you know we cannot not rely on our consumers, no matter how how hard we try, on hoping that they help provide subsidize. some level of subsidized or gratuity. And, and so it's not asking them to subsidize. So part of this is understanding the level of help that we need from our government. Because if I take a look at the other thing, why are people leaving our industry? If someone's offering you a job to work from home four days a week, as opposed to working in a kitchen five days a week and paying you more in base salary with benefits and everything else. And you are just maybe doing calls or, 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 or doing some level of um, online sales or, or work from home. Um, why wouldn't you do it? Right. And that's well, what we've seen. To stay is what you're saying, right? Yeah. So I think the system is actually broken from the bottom all the way up. It's not necessarily, if you look at a restaurant up here, that it's broken. If you take a look at the bottom and we look at, how are we attracting people to go back into hospitality school and actually come out and find a job? Because here's the issue. We are trying to attract foreign workers to come here and, and enroll in our programs, but there's no guarantee that they have a job. Mm-hmm. There's no guarantee for domestic workers. So if you look at domestic workers, we are struggling to find people domestically to be in this industry and we can't. So now we're relying on foreign workers, but we actually make it really difficult to bring foreign workers in right? Who want to be here with their families and who want to work and be part of the system. Um, It was only until recently the government changed the rule by allowing um, students, foreign students, to be able to work more than 20 hours a week, right? And so that's actually helped a little bit, but we're so far from where we need to be. Um, I also think that we struggle as an industry because we're made up of so so many different factions. We have our, our big chains and then we have small independent operators that we we have to do a better job to educate our consumer about how difficult it is to survive in this industry. It's really, really, really hard, right? And consumers need to be able to um, accept higher prices on the menu, you know, if a restaurant is going to to last and be able to pay living wages and everything else. So there is a little bit of, um, you know, we need the consumer help on in that equation, as you're saying. And that's a hard one, especially when inflation is high and people are resisting higher prices across the board. Yeah. Um, I, if you take a just look at, you know, what what we've seen in coffee, right? Coffee, dairy alone, the, the, the incremental cost on dairy. I don't think the coffee business has been affected as much as we do because coffee is habitual for people, right? And so they have no problem paying five, six dollars for a latte. Actually, it's actually more than that because 
just a basic Americano these days is anywhere from three to four dollars now. Where a couple of years ago it was two fifty, two seventy five, right? But we don't really blink an eye on something like coffee. But people start charging you for bread service, and now customers are like you're charging me for bread. I'm like, well, right. there's a, there's a lot of work that goes into making bread first of all, and the price of flour has gone up incrementally in the last three years, right? And so there's a cost of it. The other thing is. You know, I think people are starting to see the connection uh, on what's affected them at the grocery store compared to what it means for a restaurant, right? I think the whole lettuce thing was a big thing. Crazy. So people go to the grocery store and pay $9 for a head of lettuce. Um, well, we're paying the same <laughs> as, 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 as operators, right? Yeah, um, for sure. Your own restaurants, because you've, you've had several and, and, you, and you run some restaurants. How is the labor situation impacting you? I, I saw you earlier this year. Was it this year or last fall on uh, CBC as part of a roundtable of operators and different different businesses talking about labor shortages and their impact? How is it impacting you? I know you've expressed some some frustration there as well. Um, it was rough. I mean, it was a really rough go. Um after the final like lockdown in May. Um, so that period between May and the end of 2022 was a real struggle. Like we went through so many staff um, because, you know, I, I think the public needs to understand is an entire sector was shut down, shut down. And unlike a retail store where you can turn the lights on and put the inventory on a rack, we had to reopen restaurants retrain staff, rebuy food, recook, like everything was brand. It was like opening a brand new restaurant. Right. If anyone knows what it's like to open a restaurant for the first time, we had to do that five times during COVID. <laughs> right. And, 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 and to be, and I, pardon my English, to be jerked around by the government where one day you're open and they close you four days later. Uh, and we're stuck with thousands of dollars of inventory and we still got to pay wages and pay our suppliers. Um, yeah, it was hard. And the labor part made things even worse. So we were all looking for staff. And so you look at the retraction of no foreign workers were in the country because no one could get in. 40% of your staff left, but you still have the same amount of restaurants. So we're just hiring anyone literally that had a heartbeat and and, and two and, and two limbs that were working, right? Yeah. And so we had to suck it up. And we had people who were really bad. <laughs> I'm sure. And, and no matter how hard you tried, it's just, it wasn't, it wasn't meant for them to be meant, meant for them. And so it's eased a little bit. Um, I think with the opening, um, we're seeing some people return. We're seeing more, a little more workers coming back into the country. Uh, certainly the rule with the 20 hours to 40 hours changed a little bit, but we're still far, far, far from where we need to be. We, we don't have a pipeline, Right. That's the issue. We don't have a pipeline of workers. We actually don't have a pipeline of strong people that we can train into administrative and senior jobs. So where are we getting GMs, chefs, sous chefs, um, you know, event managers, all that stuff? That's a that's a real big concern for me. Um, and then certainly um, the environment has not helped. Like people think that when the lockdowns finally ended that mm -hmm. it was going to be real simple. In fact, for many of us, the recovery has been much worse than the actual lockdown because the lockdown, yeah. it's fair game. We all knew what was happening. We knew what our restrictions were. But mm -hmm. now that we're opening, 
no one's talking about the debt that we all incurred because we all are, everyone took, you know, loans from the government that got to be repaid and, you know, they, the repayment starts at the end of this year, right? So I, I personally believe we haven't even seen the brunt of the closures. I think they're going to be coming in the next six to 12 months. So Trevor, how does that impact what you're doing in your business? I mean, how are, are you, are you still open the same number of hours? Did you have to close your restaurant? What are you doing differently? in order to deal with all these massive changes that are still going on? We had to, we had to move and pivot in a, in, a, in a few ways. And, you know, there are a lot of restaurants today that are still only operating like Wednesday to Sunday because they don't have enough staff. Yep. Um, we've had to change our hours many times. We've had to change our format of business a few times. Um, I'll personally say that uh, at my age, after doing it for this long, uh, my goal is to slowly move out of being an operator. Um, we really like the event and catering side of our business and that's growing uh, and that's way more stable, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so we're looking for more partnerships to grow our catering business because we know how we can actually forecast and build for that. It's tough. You know, uh, you get inflation, you get snowstorms, you get uh, fatigue. And all of a sudden you have a week where, you no, know, actually there are days when sometimes people don't even, it's empty. Right. And we've seen that with a lot of restaurants just driving up and down major streets like Queen and mm -hmm. Austin and King. You'll see restaurants on certain nights that pre-COVID, they're busy every night. Um, and I think it's more and more people are really watching how they spend. And, you know, we can talk about sort of uh, the pattern of people, how they eat. People do not stay out late anymore. We were mm -hmm. conditioned over COVID. We we're eating at home and going to bed much earlier. So people don't go out for 10 o'clock dinners and stay out to drink anymore. Not that as much as they used to. And here's the other thing that we've seen in the last five months. Um, the amount of drinks people are purchasing at a dinner is not what it used to be. We're seeing a lot of what I call a one drink pony. They're coming out, they order dinner, they have the first drink, and then they're good because people are really watching their, their wallets right now. Right. So having said all that, as an operator, are you worried about the state of the industry? I mean, it sounds like you said you want to migrate out of restaurants and focus on catering, which I imagine the event space is doing really well. All the events that got canceled during COVID are, are just, you know, booming. Um, so what does that mean for the restaurant industry if others are feeling the same thing that you're feeling? Are you worried about the future of restaurants, given everything that's happening? I'm very worried, um, but I'm worried in a, in, a, in a perspective of this is a reset in my mind. Uh, I think the industry needed this in some aspects, but, you know, to be a successful operator, and I'm by no means consider myself a successful operator because we're working through all this, needing to understand uh, the shifts you need to make to adapt to consumerism. And the consumer has changed. I mean, mm -hmm. like we now share space with every grocery store, every corner store, every third-party uh, delivery platform, which most of the big guys are now developing their own ghost kitchen brands. So they're right. they're competing against us, right? Yeah. And uh, we're, we're also competing against non-traditionals like distilleries and breweries where the increase of at-home consumer purchase of booze from like bottle shops and breweries are sky high. Why? Because they're not going to the restaurants. They're ordering That's right. bottles bottles from shops. And now those shops are also selling food. That's right. And so... Blur the lines the, even more. 
they're completely blurred. I mean, think about why why are grocery stores all in on prepared foods and chicken dinners and sushi and sandwiches? Like they make more money on that margin than they do on their everything else in the store. Mm-hmm. And if you walk, so you if you take a look at sort of like people that go into a grocery store and watch their pattern, it's an easy convenience buy for them. So we don't have that opportunity. You can't come to a restaurant and grocery shop at the same time. Now, some some places have created bodegas, yeah. but it's not like walking into a grocery store. No, it's that's a, a very valid move. point. Uh, I mean, anybody can go to a grocery store now and buy restaurant quality pizza that's frozen and bring it home and have that at home for a lot less money. And like you said, have liquor at home. So so it's, it's created... Um, I guess it's created a really, um, you know, equal playing field. Well, well, we take also look at, you know, the progression of how much has gone online now. And if we just, if you take away just the basics of third-party delivery platforms and now look at new applications that are popping up into the market because municipal and provincial law changed um, the rule on designating your home kitchen into a commercial space. So if you get approval, you can now cook out of your home. So now we're seeing applications where people can buy at-home meals from operators and chefs who don't have their own space. So now we're competing against sometimes our own staff. Not to say that my staff (laughs) do this, but everyone wants to, you know, the whole world of, I want to try out my concept and pop up and they pop up here and okay, maybe they sell eight covers, 10 covers. Mm-hmm. But if there's 50 chefs on the platform and you multiply that over a week, that's a couple thousand covers we're talking about, right? And so there's a lot of competition and a lot of option for consumers. They're everywhere, right? So Trevor, how many restaurants are you running currently? So Superfresh Night Market is uh, a large one. Within Superfresh Market, I have uh, my, one of my own brands in there. And then we have another restaurant operating out of Stack Market. And we do uh, a majority of the event catering there. And we have uh, venue partners on the west side of the city and the east side of the city that we do uh, catering as well. Um, we're launching a new uh, product in three weeks. Goal is not to be brick and mortar, but we are launching a new brand in three weeks. So Interesting. it's about understanding, like I love this industry and I don't want to leave it, but I don't, I want to move away from, you know, leasing a brick and mortar. I want to find ways to get food to people without having that monthly expense which is it it's tough Huge. it's really really tough right Especially and I'll, be, I'll, I'll yeah i'll be honest um the lease deals out there aren't as creative and 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 nice as people might think because there's a glut of inventory i mean people are still asking this is toronto it's not cheap right i've heard that from a lot of operators that the rents have not really come down significantly no. the pandemic so that that's that hurts actually as an operator for sure after everything. Um, and, and how many employees are you uh, are on your payroll? Uh, we're around, uh, we're, we're a small size company. So we're about 20, uh, 15 to 20, depending on how busy we are. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll definitely scale up in the next couple months as we get ready for spring and summer and the event season starts to roll through. Um, yeah, uh, around, around, around 20 right now. Okay. So as part of the flaws that you were talking about earlier, you know, there's been a lot of talk about anti-racism in this industry and that, you know, the industry is not very hospitable to racialized groups. And uh, from from your perspective, do you think there's systemic racism in this industry and, and what what can be done to remove some of those barriers that have really kept 
um, everybody out of decision-making roles and not just white people? Um, I think it extends beyond racialized people. I certainly think that we have challenges um, supporting women in the industry as well uh, and the LGBTQ community, as well as access for those with disabilities. But from a racialized community perspective, if you take a look at um, who occupies the majority of our entry-level jobs as a percentage of the overall labor force, um, it's pretty obvious, right? And this is sure. this is North this is North America wide, yeah. right? Generally, South Asian um, uh, and, and 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 a lot from um, Mexico and and, uh, and and the islands. Um, so the perspective and the ratio of racialized communities that occupy those jobs, as opposed to how many of visible minorities uh, or or uh, underrepresented communities represent middle management and senior management, mm -hmm. it's completely skewed, right? And so, you know, one thing that we saw during the pandemic is obviously the social justice movement that is sort of spurred a relook at not just our industry, but industries as a whole, mm -hmm. and understanding how to create pathways for people uh, in underrepresented communities. It's very difficult to convince people to go into an industry when they don't see people like themselves in positions of um, influence. Of course. Right? And we, we have a challenge as we work with, as our agency works with some brands, even though they have really high ambitions on trying to recruit people within the company who traditionally uh, have not held those positions, um, to get these people to actually apply for those jobs is, is an issue because there is a history of belief and understanding that they would never be hired or considered for those jobs anyway, right? So that's a bigger, that's a bigger issue. Um, what I encourage people to do is the first step is really take a look inside and take a look at your organization and see what you're doing to sort of find the best talent. And to me, listen, let's, it's all about merit. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell me that in racialized communities, there are no people with merit. Of course. When they basically part of the backbone of our restaurants. Right. So we need to start setting seats at the table for people to have discussions. And so there's an understanding. You know, I always say this as a comparison. Um, when the Me Too movement hit, there was this whole um, sort of <laughs> movement of executive boardroom level meetings of middle aged men trying to make decisions for women's rights. Yeah. Think about you think about that, right? No oh, women ironic. at the table. <laughs> How ironic, yeah. right? Yeah. And so it's actually the same thing when it comes to uh racialized communities or people of underrepresented communities. If you don't have anyone that's from those communities sitting at the table with you, you don't you have not earned the right to have that discussion, right? You have to be in the community. And so that's a really big thing that we're trying to convince people in terms of changing the culture shift and changing the strategy of their businesses. Do you think it's getting better, albeit maybe slower, or is it just not moving fast enough for your liking? Like, how, I know that people, companies are trying to, to say, okay, we're talking about diversity and inclusion, but sometimes it feels like the talking is forever and the actions just don't, you know, uh, back them up, all the conversations. What's your feeling on that? Uh, as a person of color, my, my perspective is very different, right? Um, how things are are how things have always been in my life. So for for me, my answer is I'm used to it. It is what it is. 
Are we making steps? Yes, we're making steps. Are they fast enough? Um, I don't believe that anything can be fixed overnight. Right. What I don't, what, 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 what I take exception to is exactly what you talked about is nonstop discussions without action, right? In many ways, the topic of diversity reminds me of the topic of sustainability and recycling. You know, when we first, you know, came with this notion that everyone needs to be sustainable, you know, everyone put blue bins in their hotels and thought that was it, right? Yes. Uh, everyone said, we're going to put this policy in a little placard on hotel beds that says, please reuse your towels. And that was it, right? I think now it's like almost in many ways, the parallels of how that that movement was is how this is is is, is sort of working as well. It's like, I am not going to be surprised if tomorrow we shut the valve off and say we're done with this topic. It won't surprise me, right? You, we already hear it. We, I, you know, <laughs> the amount of comments that people get on direct message in emails from trolls to tell us about you should be happy with what you have, right? Isn't this enough? You know, yeah. Um, that shows that we have a long road to go, right? And there are still companies who are doing some things that from an optics perspective show that they're doing things, but you can, if you dig down deep, it's still performative. Um, And what is the flavor of this year or this year? Very true. So, you know, we, we, we see that during, during black history month, perfect example, right? You know, our talent, our, our talent, um, our black talent get, the most phone calls leading up to February. I get the most phone calls leading up to Lunar New Year, right? And that's gotta how many, be. It's gotta be so how, frustrating. I'm used to it. It's fr- I, I I'm beyond frustrated. It's not frustrating for me anymore. It's just a matter of how do we change the narrative. And so part of it is we have to take a look at sort of the shift of consumerism because the consumers are going to make this the decisions on how we do business. And we we are starting to see. I'll tell you one thing about sort of the younger generation that that I'm very fond of is that they are they are a very strong voice for things that they believe or disbelieve in more than the boomers or the Gen X's ever were. Uh, I think a lot of what we see today is spurred by the fact that they are much more open to change and much mm-hmm. more vocal about the need for change, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's frustrating at some, in some aspects, but it is what it is. I mean, I'm, I, I want to be more focused on how do we change this and how do we, and, and how we change it for a longer term strategy. And at the agency, we're, we're very open in terms of how we do business. If we believe an organization isn't doing what we think they should be doing, we probably won't do business with them, no matter how big the contract is. Interesting. So you refer to the agency and that's Quell. Maybe can you can you share a little bit about Quell with our listeners? Because I know some people know about Quell, but not everybody. Um, you started that a few years ago. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it started during COVID. Um, it was actually, you know, uh, spurned on the perspective of understanding that someone like myself who was in the market and trying to find work as a chef, uh, meaning like branded work uh, and endorsed work, it was very, very difficult. And I was like, maybe it's because we're not represented properly. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I caution people when they listen to this, not to feel offended when I say this, but it's really hard 
to sell an experience when you haven't experienced it yourself, mm-hmm. right? If you are a person that has been racialized or come from a community where you have lived experiences, it's much easier to explain the importance of certain things about certain people you represent. And we found that that was an issue. I personally found that it was an issue for me. And part of it was let's create a brand or an agency that supports leaders in food and beverage who I believe are just as good, if not better than what is out there and let's get them paid. And it's amazing the things we will see out there. And personally, I've experienced it, right? Is, you know, sometimes, you know, for years, the first thing I would get offered would be exposure or a a blender, right? And then you find out your counterparts who don't look like you were being paid $5,000 for the same campaign. And so were the right questions being asked. And so that's where we come in now. So we represent Mm -hmm. our our talent and and we want to make sure that they get equitable work for what they're performing at. What that, what that morphed and evolved into is the fastest growing part of our side, it, which is providing consultative work for businesses uh, and government bodies, um, Fortune 100 uh, and marketing agencies on building strategies around how to strengthen a company's um, culture and strategy on diversity, equity, inclusion Wonderful. within their own organization, right? Because there are great companies that have come up and saying, listen, we understand we're not where we need to be. We want to be better. We've got this money. We just don't know how to spend it. And that's a legitimate issue right now. Like we we met with a company where they really want to do something for Black History Month. But like many other companies, they were afraid. They didn't want to do the wrong thing. Right. And so they were, they were stuck between, do we do something that we're not sure is right? Or do we do nothing? And so we want to come in and actually help people build a toolbox. And a lot of times that toolbox already exists inside a company. They just don't know how to put it together. We think about it. We talked about sort of what comprises the workforce in a lot of companies. And a lot of our workforce on the entry level or or lower management Mm -hmm. are, are people from racialized communities. You need to tap into your own resources and understand what they believe is important for them within a company and why they want to work for you, right? And so these are some of the strategies that we're, we're working on. And are these food service and hospitality companies that come to you for this kind of help or is it outside of this industry as well? We we are getting we are getting outside of the industry as well. We are getting within industry because we're working with destination man, destinations as well who have seen a extreme shift on what their traditional visitor is, like what their tourist is, like their Mm -hmm. tourist, particularly small town destinations that are cottage towns. Mm -hmm. If we were in a conversation five years ago and I said to all my friends, what does a cottager look like? You probably paint a picture of what a cottager in Ontario looks like. The -hmm. reality is a cottager in Ontario, in Canada, is not the same anymore. We have second and third generation Canadians that are not middle Eurocentric, old money in this country. We have people mm-hmm. like myself who grew up in this country around a cottage culture mm-hmm. who wanted to enjoy, wanted to be, the, you know, uh, going to the cottage, who watched hockey growing up. We may not look like it, but we've seen that shift. And so what do kids growing up in Canada want to do? They want to do what everyone else does that they see at school and on TV. And so you're seeing different demographics of people traveling to parts of our country that traditionally maybe we weren't traveling to because we were stuck in uh, rural areas working. 
And so we have destinations that have reached out to us and say, we we recognize this. We want to be more inclusive. We don't know how to get there. Can you tell us how to get there? Which is great, which means means there's a shift for sure. That's great that uh, the conversation is changing and and you're helping shift those, uh, those conversations as well. Um, I know you've started a new conference, too, that's going to be happening at the end of the month. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sounds like a great concept, and uh, I'm sure yeah, we'll hear more about it. We're very excited. Uh, March 28th and 29th, we'll be putting on a two-day, what we call an unconference, because we want it to be very unique in, in the terms of uh, learning. Uh, we don't want to be traditional in terms of how most conferences happen. It's called Unblock. Uh, We'll be opening with an opening event at Bar Mordecai, which is one of the top 50 best bars in North America. General manager and owner is Christina uh, Vieira, who is someone we represent. Um, Then we will put on uh, a full day of education at the Evergreen Brickworks. Uh, We have tremendous lineup. Uh, It's broken down to four different streams. We'll have an opening keynote and a closing keynote. Uh, Justin Wu, who who is a Canadian um, Chinese producer, photographer, and and uh, director uh, who's gone through his own struggles and, and award-winning will be uh, our opening keynote. Our closing keynote will be John Wiggins, who is the VP of Community and Culture for the Toronto Raptors. Uh, and then in between, we have, you know, an executive panel uh, that'll include Tina Lee from TNT and general manager from DoorDash Canada. Um, and a lot of really great sessions in between. Right, uh, and then we have a closing party uh, at the end of that day at uh, Access Nightclub in Little Italy, um, which we hope to announce our special guest today, as part of our partnership with uh, Will Lou and Alex Wong of the Raptor Show on on on, uh, on TV and the Raptors, and so we're very excited, sort of like at the programming, and it's really focused on providing a new level of learning around integrating DEI in your businesses, specifically. Food, drink, hospitality, right? Decolonizing food, um, taking a look at your workforce, um, understanding proper language and how to talk and how to copyright and all these little things that a lot of people don't understand are very important elements of building a business. You're really going to the like to every level of the business. That's amazing. Every level, yeah. That's wonderful. Well, I look forward to attending and, and to seeing what it's all about. Um, any Parting thoughts, I guess, about the last three years and the lessons you've learned. It sounds like you've really, the pandemic has obviously impacted you, but you haven't just stood still. You've been able to do a variety of different uh, initiatives and you've really grown in your own role. Um, Any last parting thoughts on that? Uh, I think everything is different for everyone else. Um, COVID was definitely a wake up for me. Uh, It was in many aspects, a silver lining in terms of what, what, what happened became a silver lining because I understood that the way my business was built was nowhere as strong as I thought it was. Number one, number two, uh, if I took an inward look, um, there are things in this industry that I'm not about every once on those. And there's part of these industries that um, I'm trying to move away from and and change a little bit. I think you'll a lot of people will see that my shift is that I I'm more interested in being part of the industry that has a level of purpose attached to it. Uh, I love this industry dearly. Uh, I grew up in it. Um, you know, I I saw my grandfather slave over 
that those kitchens. He was a cut man at old Ed's warehouse as well, without speaking a word of English. And my father for that part as well. And so for me, it's trying to understand how we can make this industry better. And so having our agency, number one, is approaching it from a different lens uh, and being part of food and drink, but from a different angle. I think I'll always be a bit of an operator, um, but I operate with a different lens as well. Specifically, I want to understand better how we can be better to our workforce. Um, sometimes the way you feel is the right thing you're doing as an operator for your workforce isn't necessarily the right thing. And I think we need to listen to our staff a lot more. Um, super fresh for us, it wasn't about the food. It was about building a community space for our community. And that's really what it's become. And I'd like to build more spaces like that if I was going to stay into it. It needs to be purpose and purposeful and and supporting community and supporting ecosystem. The reason why we're at Stacked is because Stacked is an ecosystem for the community. We support small business and um, at-risk and underrepresented communities as a place to do business. And, you know, I wish more people would see and vie for things like that as opposed to basic consumerism. Right. Everything you're saying is so refreshing is really what I'm saying. Um, and I think if every operator tackled one tenth of what you're talking about, I think the industry would be on the road to to being a better place. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. And I really look forward to attending uh, your conference later this month and to seeing it all play out. So so thanks again, Trevor. Thank you for the opportunity, Rosanna. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.